Listening to Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to our podcast live with the ABA section of Antitrust Law. This is Natalie Hayes of Wild Gotchel and Mangies, and I'm the host for today's episode. Joining me this morning from the exciting Antitrust Spring meeting, I have Stacy Frazier from GE, Sarah Lisa Brow of McKesson, and Andrew King from the International Paper Company. Welcome to our Corporate Counseling Tips podcast. Before we get started, please tell us a little bit more about yourselves. Like, where do you work? What do you do? And where can we find you when you aren't working? Let's start with Stacy. Hi, I work at General Electric. I'm one of the antitrust lawyers at GE um, at the corporate level. So we oversee all the businesses. Uh, when I'm not working, I'm probably chasing toddlers in the backyard, something along those lines. Excellent. That sounds like a lot more fun than working. Generally, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about Sarah Lisa? Yeah, hi. Good morning, Natalie. So I work at McKesson, where I'm the chief antitrust counsel. This is also a corporate role, shared services, where we support all of our various business functions. When I'm not at work, I am also chasing toddlers <laughs> <laughs> and uh, young children. Um, I'm the, uh, lucky to have three little kids. Excellent. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, how about you, Andrew? Uh, yes, well, thank you for having me. I am the lead antitrust lawyer at an international paper company. Um, I also have responsibility for international trade and the anti-corruption compliance program. Um, and what am I doing where I, when I'm not working? Um, my kids are not toddlers anymore, but <laughs> I am now coaching lacrosse and other sports, so um, still kid-related. Excellent. Well, it sounds like we have a great panel today. Thank you all for joining us. We're here to discuss corporate counseling tips, uh, but we're also gonna work in a few career tips for those interested in following in your footsteps. We'll start with your tips for other folks in a role like yours. Does anyone have any tips for other corporate counsel on how to work within large organizations where you're focused on a single client as opposed to working in a firm where you might be working with many different clients? I don't know about you guys, Sarah, Lisa, and Andy, but I think you still are actually working for multiple clients when you're within a large organization. Whoever is on the end of that phone is a client who may have different interests than somebody else within your organization. And so I think that's the the thing that I had to learn and, and still have to remind myself is it's not a monolith. Even though you ha you're with one company, you still have a lot of different things going on and each one you have to treat like its own little client. Yeah, that's a really great tip, Sarah Lisa. Yeah, I think that's a, a great point and one that I've come to, to learn as well. Um, I find, too, that, you know, it may be a single client, but there are sort of multiple relationships that you have to build, not sort of across different business lines, which is certainly true, but also sort of up and down within the company. And so spending time developing those relationships, showing up in person to meetings, um, even though that means extra travel, can be really beneficial to getting to know both the clients sort of broadly, but also sort of vertically up and down the corporate ladder. I would echo both of those those sentiments. On the, the single client point, I think that you've got some natural divisions in terms of different business units, and they have very different issues. But then even within a business unit, depending on the function you're talking about and the level you're talking to, the message uh, is going to be very different. And they all have business objectives that they are trying to accomplish and meet and trying to tailor your advice to meet and match those objectives is critical and really helps build trust between you and the various levels, which is critical when particularly difficult issues arise. 
Those are all great tips. Thank you for sharing. One thing that I thought of as I was thinking about um, what might be interesting to hear more about is an issue I run into sometimes with clients is that perhaps their companies aren't focused on antitrust issues or they might not have an antitrust specialist. So I thought perhaps you could share some tips on antitrust compliance trainings and programs and how in-house counsel can implement those either if they don't have an antitrust specialist or to try to get the business teams focused on, on issues like that. If a company doesn't have an antitrust specialist, there are a lot of materials out there that you can leverage to help easily create a, a useful message. I do caution, however, that they are a starting point and not an end point. Nothing will prevent the business from listening to what any lawyer is telling them if it's not tailored to their specific situation. And so you need to start with an understanding of the business and again, their business objectives and the conditions under which they're operating, and then adapt some of those outside materials to them. Mm -hmm. And I find that an approach that sort of takes a ripped from the headlines approach, and if there's recent enforcement or private litigation that touches on issues that the business may be facing, or even in a similar sort of line of business, if you start with that and then build specific hypotheticals off of that, that relate to the particular business practice. I think there's no substitute for, you know, to echo your point, Andy, the, the tailoring and the hypotheticals and really trying to invite audience participation, if you can, to really sort of enact scenarios and equip our business colleagues with how to respond in real time to challenges that they, that they may face. I think those are both great points. Uh, you know, what we do at GE, what works for the healthcare business doesn't work for our renewables business. They have different business models and your antitrust risk really goes back to what your business model is. So you, you have to learn the business model. And I think one of the things that can be hard in doing compliance for antitrust is in some areas, it's really easy to put in sort of technical controls um, that will prevent risk. So for example, you can put in something in your um, expense approval system that can flag expenses if you're worried about some sort of corruption payment. It's a lot harder to do that in antitrust. And it's part of, you know, antitrust risk is sort of part of doing business. And so that's why you absolutely have to understand your business, because otherwise you don't understand the antitrust risks. We've also moved to a very hypothetical example-based type training. I think it works a lot better. And I think, I think that's something that that's not just a tip for the people who are in-house, but I'd say that's also a tip for the law firms who are helping us develop these materials. We got a lot of materials for training that say things like, well, Section 1 of the Sherman Act states, and you know, there's six slides like that, and that doesn't, you've lost your audience. And so I think starting from the, what does the business do? What situations are they in? And then you work backwards from that in delivering the compliance advice. Okay. That's all really helpful advice, not for just the in-house folks, but also for folks at law firms uh, designing these trainings. Another question I thought um, some folks here might be able to weigh in on is any advice for M&A lawyers working on transactions in-house that are likely to receive scrutiny from the antitrust agencies and how they can manage that risk and manage both their internal expectations and their outside law firms to try to, to mitigate that? You just have to involve antitrust counsel very early because I think there's antitrust risks and components of a deal that the M&A counsel understandably may not be sensitized to. I think, you know, M&A counsel often sort of knows, okay, I need to figure out where this might be filed. 
But for example, one that that I've seen come up is before you're even really thinking about whether there's a deal, you're signing some sort of non-disclosure agreement, somebody puts in something there about hiring from each other. And that's not something that unless you're an antitrust specialist, you really know to think about. So I think that the advice I always give M&A is don't try and do the antitrust, bring in an antitrust specialist because there are little things that you can trip up on that can jeopardize the deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I think that, you know, one area where I've seen some of our M&A lawyers add a lot of value is, especially sort of in-house M&A folks, is sort of sensitivity to those antitrust trigger words and being a first line of defense and taking those out of emails, out of NDAs, out of sort of early deal decks that may not have found their way to antitrust counsel yet, to be that first line of defense, to take out stuff that could really trip up a deal, especially if it's, you know, a term or a word that, you know, may be misused or oversensitive. To be that first line of defense can be tremendously helpful. And some of those terms might be, for example... Oh, you know, talking about market share, talking about dominate, talking about this is a defensive move, this will help us build a moat entry barriers, rationalizing the space. Right? I, mean, I think we've we've all heard a lot of these. <laughs> um, and so if you have that first line of defense to help sort of take those out early on, that can be tremendously valuable. Yeah, that's that's a great tip. And the, hopefully the M&A lawyers listening have, have jotted those down or can <laughs> uh, rewind 30 seconds there. Uh, Andrew, did you have anything? I would also add, get to the investment bankers as early as possible. And not just after a deal has started to be considered, because the business is thinking about deals extremely early, way before they get any antitrust lawyers involved. And so sensitizing the M&A lawyers, as well as the corporate development people, to the types of analyses that are going to further the business deal, but also be cognizant of antitrust uh, implications, is really important. You have a lot of, and this is no knock on recent MBAs, but you have a lot of recent MBAs drafting decks when they just don't have an understanding of the legal regimes through which transactions need to be cleared, and and they get a lot of things wrong because of it. And so really trying to develop that, that awareness early, even pre-deal um, consideration. That makes a lot of sense. So I think the next section we were thinking of covering is some advice for those who are working with corporate counsel rather than the other, other folks in your role. So I think we can kick this off with to the extent you were previously at a firm or with the government, what advice do you have for your former colleagues on working with in-house counsel? So I'm happy to, to kick this one off. So I came most recently uh, from government before joining McKesson. And, you know, I found that on the whole, sort of expectations were pretty well aligned. But one thing that I've come to appreciate, you know, even more now being in-house is that when there are data requests or information requests or requests from the client... I think too often it's easy to assume that data and information can be produced to the government at the push of a button and that there are information systems that will allow that to be done relatively <laughs> rapidly and quickly and in an efficient and clean way. And the reality is when um, you know companies are dealing with IT infrastructure of different generations and complexity, that that often is not the case. And so to take steps, you know, including, as is often the case, sort of samples and working through that data and to, you know, be thoughtful and mindful about narrowing requests early in light of the fact that these things do take time. And even with sort of the best faith, sort of all reasonable speed intentions, things can slow down because there's a lot of complexity behind um, some of the uh, the data systems in particular. 
one thing that I also find really helpful, and this sort of dovetails off the data system points, is you know when outside lawyers are talking to me in in house, it's an antitrust lawyer talking to an antitrust lawyer. But then I have to go speak to people who probably aren't even lawyers. And so I think one thing that is really helpful for our firms is to sort of help me do the translation. So for example, I'll get data requests or emails that are very legal that, you know, and, and then if it's too legal, if it's too theoretical, if it's not very specific and direct, I can't then just forward it to my business people and I have to spend an hour deciphering it. So I think one of the things that you can do is in-house counsel that makes, or sorry, outside counsel that makes in-house counsel's life a lot easier is to start speaking that language that we have to speak, which is the different from what you speak with when you're talking to another antitrust lawyer. Yeah, just to add to that a, a little bit, and I think that's absolutely right. Um, when you say create an email that I can forward, it's that is extremely helpful. And I think that leads into a larger point of, of being efficient and listening to what in-house counsel wants as a work product. So trying to think practically and providing work product in an efficient manner. So like being able to forward a request on where in-house counsel doesn't have to deal with it, you know, for an hour to get it in the right shape. Also listen to in-house counsel about what kind of work product, whether it's a summary, whether it's a, a timeline, will help them do their jobs. And generally, I think in-house counsel know what they need. And so if outside counsel listens or asks if they're not, you know, getting information on, on what work product would be most useful to go ahead and ask, because whether in an information request, that's something you can forward. If it's a summary that maybe you want to um, incorporate into a, a board document or into a, a larger summary into, you know, to the general counsel or to one of the business leaders, then that can save in-house counsel time. And in large respects, many situations, in-house counsel are hiring outside counsel to relieve workload. Thanks. Those are all great tips. The next question I had was whether you had any examples of a time when outside counsel did something unexpected or unique that really struck you as valuable or different that you'd like to see other outside counsel adopting or otherwise could help people improve their, uh, their skills as outside firms. I think issue spotting is really important. So one of the things that I've seen and really valued is I might have outside counsel in working on a deal and they'll call me afterwards and say, you know, I heard them talking about this program and I would like, you know, I want you to make sure you know about this program because they're doing some interesting things with pricing that maybe have antitrust sensitivities. So I think sort of recognizing that you're counsel for the entire company, not just the matter you're on, even if you're only being retained for a merger you know, spot the things I should be spotting and may have missed. That's helped me a lot. Yeah, I 100% agree. That kind of issue spotting and, and building off of, you know, past transactional work, current transactional work, current counseling is is huge. One other sort of very sort of small example, but that I found to be really creative that I've seen is in the context of doing some compliance counseling, sort of training to some folks Afterwards, the suggestion came that we should do sort of a quiz of the business executives who had taken or partaken in this training to really underscore and be certain that the message had gone through <laughs> and that um, the specific guidance 
and guardrails were, were more likely to be observed. And this may be something that you know, happens more regularly in other instances, but the, the way that the, the quiz was put together and then sort of the follow-up conversations that that enabled us to have were, were really helpful and um, I think really sort of a little outside the box in terms of what we'd seen previously. Okay. I think we can move on now to our career tips and topics for other people who'd like to follow in your footsteps. We start by uh, asking you to walk us through your career path a little bit and give us a sense of how you ended up in-house. I uh, started as an engineer after college and then wanted to play a different role within a company. And so went back to law school actually to be a patent lawyer and then um, spent a summer while in law school prosecuting a patent and opted for a different direction. So then uh, I went to a, a law firm here in D.C. for about 10 years and practiced in the antitrust group and then moved in-house. And so I, in law school, uh, had done sort of economics undergrad, as I think a lot of folks who end up in antitrust um, sometimes do. And then during my summers, worked one summer at the FTC and also at firms. Worked for a law firm in New York for about five years after law school doing antitrust work, uh, mostly in the healthcare sector, but, but also in other sectors. And then after about five years, um, had stayed in touch with some folks at the FTC from my summer internship and moved to D.C. and took a role in the healthcare division at the Federal Trade Commission and worked there for about 10 years and was the, the deputy in the healthcare division. And then about a year and a half ago, joined McKesson as their first antitrust lawyer, and I'm the chief counsel there now. I was one of those uh, people who went to law school because I couldn't necessarily figure out what to do. And, and so I experimented with everything when I was in law school and went to summer at a law firm here in D.C. and sort of started doing a few antitrust projects. And there was uh, I never even took antitrust law in law school, um, which I think was probably readily apparent to most people I was working with. But um, I, I really enjoyed it and I really enjoyed the people. And so I went back to the law firm after law school and then just found it to be a really interesting um, area of law to practice. Stayed at the law firm for, I was going to stay just a couple years and I ended up staying nine or 10 years before moving into my role at GE. And so do you have any tips for anyone who is interested in transitioning into an in-house role from a firm or the government? Just as a, an initial comment, I think that one, knowing the business you're talking to is, is going to be critical. You don't have to know all the ins and outs, but if you're going in as an antitrust lawyer, try to understand their business model, some of their sales channels to market, that sort of thing. Understand what antitrust issues could arise. And then as a second point, I think that one of the things that attorneys who have been at firms need to overcome when applying for a position in-house is really the fear that the outside counsel when they transition won't be fast enough or flexible enough that they will want to dive into every issue as if it were a brief. And in the corporate setting, you really need to be able to think fast and provide advice in a real in real time. And then, you know, if need be, put the brakes on so you can go get a, a deeper answer. But you need to operate at the speed of that the business does. And I think part of that is getting comfortable making decisions sometimes without complete certainty and complete set of facts and being willing to take a risk. I think when you're at a law firm, you can often treat antitrust problems like a law school exam. You know, you can really think, what does the law say? Write a long memo that doesn't necessarily come to a conclusion, but what, you know, 
to Andy's point, you really have to make those decisions quickly. And so sometimes you're going to be, you know, sort of taking a bit of a risk. And sometimes you're, you may get it wrong. Um, but I think you still have to recognize you're a piece of overhead to the business people. You are a cost just like, you know, the office is. And so you need to be sort of helping them rather than hindering them. So even if you have to throw on the brakes, you have to do it in a way that says, no, I'm trying to help. I see what you're trying to do. And I want to help you get there. So here's how we're going to figure out a way to get there. But I think you sort of have to just get very confident and be willing to make decisions with imperfect information. And just one other comment on that. I think one transition point that is important is to overcome this idea of you start any analysis with, okay, is it the Sherman Act or the Clayton Act? And then what's the rule of reason of the per se framework? And, you know, the business doesn't want to hear any of that, right? They want the answer. And so driving succinctly to an answer, <laughs> you know, hopefully it's right, may not always be right, but getting there succinctly and quickly and losing the legalese and translating that into practical, real plain English is a skill that I, I think can be, is critical and, you know, may not always, you know, be the easiest transition early on. Those are all great tips. Do you have any advice more generally on finding in-house positions if you're in a firm or the government, you're looking to make that transition and you're looking to make that transition anything that might be useful? I think when you're at a law firm, it's very tempting to only work on the big merger, the big litigation, the big investigation. But when you're in-house, that's actually not the majority of what you do. So I think when you're at a law firm, look for the opportunity to counsel. Look for the opportunity to work on compliance manuals, which may not be as interesting at times. I'll be completely honest. We, we can probably all agree on that. But that's what's going to give you the, the edge when you're being interviewed. There, you, know, you, you can interview people who have these stellar resumes from law firms, but you say, tell me a time a client picked up the phone and called you and you walked them through a problem they were having. And you, you need to be able to answer that question with specific examples. And so I'd say focus on the sort of more the softer skills of counseling. Um, that's really going to give you a leg up. Yeah, I think that that is is certainly an important point. And I think one that has come through in, when I've interviewed people for, for different positions or when I've been interviewing. I also would say that as an in-house antitrust lawyer, they will look to you to be the antitrust expert, obviously. And being able to talk intelligently about the attitudes of the DOJ or the FTC in merger clearance or in investigations, I think lends that credibility that, yes, you can do the softer side, and yes, you can be agile and nimble and provide practical business advice, but that it's also rooted in, in an expertise. And so I think it's, it's really a combination of the two where I think I've seen a lot of value. Okay. So do you have any advice for young lawyers more generally, perhaps those in government or at firms, on how to succeed just as antitrust lawyers, perhaps not in a specific setting, but just general advice on things they can be doing to be more successful? I think following legal developments, just to pick up on the point Andy just made, is really important. I think it's really impressive when a young lawyer can say, hey, I saw this guidance came out of the DOJ. Um, and I think it's really easy for young lawyers to follow the, the senior lawyers on that and wait for that information to be disseminated down. But I think being a sort of active participant in ongoing learning is really important. And I don't mean just 
reading case law. I'm, I'm really mean talking about following developments. Wow, it seems like there's a lot of activity in no poach. That's something I should keep in the back of my mind. I think involvement, you know, on that education sort of theme, um, you know, involvement, whether it's with the ABA or other professional groups, both in terms of, you know, getting to know other practitioners well, getting to know folks who are practicing in different settings than you are, and being able to develop that network and the opportunity to maybe do writing and speaking is an additional way to kind of force yourself to stay up on developments. Um, there's no, you know, there's no way to master something like teaching something. So opportunities to do that can be, you know, tremendously valuable and pay off in spades, sort of down the road. Speaking of the ABA, do you have any examples of opportunities that you would recommend to young lawyers or really anyone uh, within the section of antitrust law that you've found valuable or has offered a valuable developmental opportunity that you would recommend? I think just participating. I think having a network of people that, you know, as you get further down in the career, your career, you can say, I feel like I'm seeing this at the agency. Are you seeing this with your clients or, or with your company? So I think, you know, just the, the sort of the networking aspect is really important. And I think it's, it's hard to do when you're starting out and, you know, you walk into one of these cocktail parties and, you know, there are a bunch of people who clearly have been working together for 30 years. But I think just take advantage of the people around you and the knowledge they have. And I would say that the ABA provides a, a wonderful opportunity to, um, again, to interact with, with antitrust authorities, you know, who have been in the, the practice for 30 years. And one, going back to the younger lawyers and advice for younger antitrust lawyers, I think if you can use these forums really just to show an interest, and if you're excited about the area of law and you read some of these cases and you have ideas about extensions or where the law should go, I wouldn't be hesitant at all, particularly as a young lawyer, to enter into discussions around those. And just your enthusiasm, your interest, and even if you get it wrong, you're a young lawyer. You're not expected to know it all, and that's actually the best time to, to learn it. And people, I think, are impressed when young lawyers consider more than just the facts of the cases and move beyond them and have ideas about where the law should go or the underlying economic theories. This has been really informative. Before we wrap up, I think we have time for one last question. And so that is, what is one thing you wish someone had told you when you were first starting out, either as a lawyer or in a corporate counseling role that you can share with us today? That's a good question because it's sort of a, what are the things you did wrong <laughs> early <Yeah>. on? <laughs> um, I think one of the things that I wish... I had thought more about when I was starting out is even if you're a long, young lawyer, you really do have opportunities to interact directly with clients and you really should feel comfortable doing that. I think that there's a real fear of bothering the client. The client doesn't want to hear from me. They only want to hear from the partner. And young lawyers are important to us. They're our future senior lawyers. So I think I would encourage young lawyers to feel very comfortable talking to their clients and to feel comfortable. You know, sometimes I think people worry they're bothering their clients, but you, you know, we want to invest in you too. It's important to us to invest in you. We need the pipeline. So that's one thing that I, I wish I hadn't been quite so afraid of bothering a client because yeah, if you get it wrong, you might bother the client. But at the same time, if you say, I'm interested in your business, can I learn more about what you do? Usually you're going you're, you're gonna to get a yes. I would say that particularly if you're at a, a law firm and you're a long, young antitrust lawyer, there's going to be a lot of process. 
and there's going to be a lot of a lot of work to do and it's important to take time no matter how busy you have been to step back and think about the bigger picture both the client's situation as well as kind of relating back to my last comment about kind of the substance of antitrust law and kind of some of those bigger questions that's really where a lot of, of the value, I think, comes in and helps you put it in perspective. Um, so I would encourage I would encourage young lawyers to do that. I think one piece of advice that I heard sort of early on that sort of resonated and that I try to, to, to share with others is it can be really gratifying and really interesting when you make your own work. So that is to say, we all have assignments, but when you're able to sort of spot, how do I add additional value that take the initiative and either talk to the partner or the senior lawyer about, well, you know, I think we can extend it by X. And I think we can do this. And sort of to create opportunities to create work product that you find interesting after you've vetted <laughs> that this actually is something the client wants to pay for can be a way to grow, to take initiative and to not always sort of be um, having work delegated to you, but to sort of create your own work, create the initiative and drive that forward can be you know, a really valuable <laughs> tool going forward. Well, with those great tips for lawyers in-house, outside counsel, and in the government, it looks like we've reached the end of our program. I want to thank Stacy, Sarah, Lisa, and Andrew for joining us today. If our listeners have questions or wish to follow up with you, how can they reach you? I'm on LinkedIn and, and happy to receive messages uh, through that service. So. Yep, this is Sarah, Lisa. I'm on LinkedIn as well. Happy to have messages. And this is Stacy. Same here. Great way to reach us. This concludes another podcast with the ABA section of Antitrust Law. If you like what you hear, please join us in person at some of our upcoming conferences. Details are available at ambar.org antitrust. I'm Natalie Hayes. Until next time, thank you for listening. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.